Hello, my name is Sophia Prone. I am a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I had the privilege of working on our event, Social Inequality in Maternal and Child Health in Latin America, a Health Equity Perspective. I'm here today with our speaker, Dr. Arachu Castro, a professor at Tulane University's School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. I wanted to start off um, with a little bit of your history of medical anthropology, and I was wondering when the first encounter you had with medical anthropology was and how that impacted your career. Well, I was a sophomore in college at the University of Barcelona uh, when I read an article about health and nutrition among the Inuit in Alaska, and I thought that was fascinating, and I decided that that's the type of work I wanted to do, to work on health on health issues. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's great that you were able to find it a little earlier in your undergraduate career. Well, it helped, um, it helped me decide which, which courses to take and which direction to take, definitely. Yeah. What is the driving factor for your research? And what originally inspired you to go into global health and kind of take medical anthropology and bring it into global health? One of my advisors suggested that I study a master's in public health in addition to my PhD in anthropology. And that was great advice. I was not very familiar with MPH programs. This is a long time ago. And I, um, I wanted to come to the US where I had already studied for a year when I, when I was in high school as an exchange student. And uh, I, that's how going through course catalogs, I discovered that there were some schools that offered a concentration in international health, now mostly known as global health. Mm -hmm. But I decided that that's what I wanted to do. I think you talked about that in the class visit a little yesterday, mm -hmm. but it's really interesting to see how different it was to find those, like the schools and the different programs than it is today. Definitely, there wasn't a path yeah. established. So I had to find my own way there. Yeah. Um, actually, I'll jump to that question because uh, you talked about that a lot in the class yesterday about how your path wasn't linear. Um, and I was telling my professors that's something I feel like I'm learning now. Um, and it's a hard lesson. So I was wondering if you could talk about the value you found in choosing a career where there wasn't a really clear path and you kind of had to make your own. Well, it was a process of discovery because I really didn't know, I, I you know, in so, as, as a sophomore, mm -hmm. I realized I wanted to become a medical anthropologist. There was absolutely no career path for me at the time. This is in the 1980s. And I thought it very rewarding to have gone and found out how to become a medical anthropologist. I can't imagine the excitement, but also the fear involved in that. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't think of the fear. I, I don't, I didn't see that factor. Um, it was, you know, exploration, discovery. What um, moments have been most influential? And if you had the opportunity to start over, would you do anything again? Um, or would you change anything? No, I, I think I've done what I wanted to do professionally. And I've still, you know, I'm doing and I have I still have lots of ideas of projects that I like to pursue. And going back to one of your previous questions, I'm motivated by working, this thinking of research projects that help visualize an issue that is important for a lot of people, but that it goes unnoticed mm -hmm. oftentimes. 
uh, because I work mostly with people who live in poverty and extreme poverty and they have lots of issues and uh, they don't always, uh, oftentimes are being ignored. Mm -hmm. And then I work with public institutions that have some level of responsibility over those issues and, and I work with them so that my research findings help better address the needs of those populations. And I find that very rewarding. Um, I would not, I mean, sometimes, you know, I write articles because I'm reflecting uh, more like essays. I'm reflecting about things that I have seen or findings from my research. But the first recipients of my research studies are, well, the people that live under those circumstances and the people who have some responsibility, uh, political responsibility over that. I think that was the definitely the most impactful part of last night's event for me was I'd been exposed to these issues before and I knew how important they were and um, how unsettling it can be to first hear about how different people's experiences are giving birth, for example. Um, but to see my friends' reactions in the crowd and to like, have those conversations with them and have them be like, I had no idea, but now I'm really interested. Mm -hmm. um, it just reaffirmed how important it is to shed light on those populations that aren't getting the attention they deserve. Having worked with Paul Farmer, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that experience was like and what you think the lasting impact of your generation's work is going to be on the medical anthropology field. Well, I mean, Paul leaves a vast legacy. He inspired a lot of people to become engaged in working in either as public health practitioners or medical doctors or anthropologists with populations who live in poverty and who have um, lots of needs that are not addressed. And um, I think that global, you know, when Paul passed away a year ago this week, a lot of people wrote about how he transformed the field of global health. And I agree that uh, he helped shed a different light, particularly on issues of poverty and inequality. Having that experience and having your own vast research experience, uh, I was wondering if you are able to define what you think the most critical skill for a medical anthropologist is. You have to read a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I also think it's important, you know, when I was trained, and there are some schools, some departments of anthropology that emphasize a lot of the reading, which I think is extremely important. So it's very important to be familiar with the social theory. In some departments, students are not exposed to methods. Um, I wasn't at the University of Barcelona. I was like, go out and do it. And then I went to Paris to do my PhD, and it was the same thing, no methods, just go out and do it. I, I think it does help to have methodology. In my case, what I did is that I, because I was interested already in public health and particularly epidemiology, I was trained in epidemiological methods and that was very helpful in my case. Mm, I found that a lot of medical anthropologists are number adverse, like they, they don't want to see anything quantitative. I do encourage uh, medical anthropologists to also look at the quantitative side because I think it rounds up more of the approach that you can have. Mm -hmm. But you know, like some people may disagree, but I, in my case, I find it extremely helpful. Yeah, that was definitely 
something I was fortunate to learn early on because I think the first time I took a class where we had to do quantitative research for anthropology, it was really overwhelming and I was like, I don't know if research is for me. But taking the time and reading ethnographies since then, I realized how much I value it as a reader and as an anthropologist. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your presidency with the Society for Medical Anthropology. I became a member of the Society for Medical Anthropology a long time ago when I was still in Europe and at the time you know there was no internet so it was great to receive in paper <laughs> in my mail newsletters and uh, to know what was happening and then when I moved to the US in 1997 well it was easier because I could come to all the conferences but you know early you know until the internet became widespread. This is how people met and exchanged information by going to conferences. Mm -hmm. And uh, I became active particularly with a group that was then not too large, which was the Critical Medical Anthropology Caucus. And uh, I became chair of that group a long time ago. And I started, I, I thought, well, I think every medical anthropologist would be a critical medical anthropologist. So I became very engaged with the SMA. And uh, a long time ago, I was elected secretary treasurer. After that, they split the position, and now you have a secretary and you have a treasurer. And then I thought, wow, I've done a lot for the SMA. And then some years ago, I got a call from a very convincing professor in New York at Columbia who said, hey, we'd like you to, to be one of the candidates for president of the SMA. And I said, well, I have to think about this because it takes a lot of time. But um, it was, uh, so I was elected and it was a good experience. It was four years of dedication because first you are president-elect and two years elect and then one year past president. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it was a very good experience. It's, it's amazing for, as a student, to be able to hear that perspective because mm -hmm. there are all these societies that I'm getting to know and getting familiar with and to be able to like meet someone that actually had a role like that and see the path is really great. And you know, there's always uh, opportunities for students. At the SMA board, there's always a student representative. Mm -hmm. And there is a, we have a, a group, MASA, mm -hmm. Medical Anthropology St Students Association. And I think it's important for students to become members because that's how you get to know your future colleagues. Mm -hmm. And also the, you know, the people who are now professors but um, a lot of the MASA members will eventually become professors. Not all of them. Some others will pursue other careers. But uh, it's a great way of getting to know your colleagues. That's amazing. I'll definitely have to check that out. As a professor, what is one thing that you hope all students leave your classroom knowing? I, I pay a lot of, as you noticed yesterday, I pay a lot of emphasis on understanding that social inequality means that people have different lived experiences across the social gradient and that it's very important as anthropologists to understand that people have very different perspectives and that it's very important to situate where they are mm -hmm. in that gradient and understand their perspectives. Mm -hmm. And also that when we look at, you know, I, I do, <laughs> I was going to say play with numbers, but I do <laughs> analyze data and it's always very important to be wary of um, averages, like national averages, because that doesn't tell us about the unequal distribution of any condition that you want to look into.
I'm in an anthropology course now with half environmental science majors, and that's been the most interesting part for me to discover like where my anthropology comes in and the policy changes they suggest. I'm like, well, wait a minute, like that's not going to work if we actually look at the deep down issues. I was hoping that you could talk more about your experience with the World Health Organization. You have so many amazing experiences, it's hard to believe that you're able to balance it all. I collaborated with the World Health Organization in many occasions. I've served on different committees. I, start, I don't know when it's the first time, but it was a long time ago. And, and right now I'm in a called STAGE, is a scientifically and technical advisory group of experts on I don't know if I can remember the exact name, but it's uh, maternal, child, adolescent health and nutrition. Mm -hmm. And we are a group of around 30 people from around the world, and we meet regularly and uh, come up with recommendations for the Director General of the World Health Organization. It takes some time, but it's also rewarding because, again, I'm, you know, we always learning. Mm -hmm. um, don't only learn when you are a student. We, as professors, we're constantly learning. I mean, I, every time I read a paper, there's something I'm going to learn about this. Being with this group of uh, people from around the world and learning their perspectives, it's also a way of learning. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's always very interesting to be able to contribute to uh, providing ideas to somebody uh, position such as the Director General of WHO. You also did some research throughout COVID-19, and I mentioned yesterday during your introduction that you ended up testifying in front of the U.S. House and Senate on vaccine access. I was wondering how COVID-19 shaped your research style, and if there was any adaptations you had to make during the pandemic that you're going to continue to use in future research. Well, definitely, everybody had to adapt, right? Mm -hmm. So I usually love going to the places where I'm doing the research and being engaged with the populations I'm studying. And of course, I couldn't travel, so I moved into online research. I was remotely interviewing people from throughout Latin America via Zoom. And, you know, the interviews, I was analyzing them qualitatively, such as I do interviews in person, but of course, I did those from my home, and I was missing being in the context because I, I like being in those places. But uh, I did also participate in two online surveys. could be helpful in certain opportunities. I did like the opportunity of doing interviews via Zoom. And sometimes you really don't need to travel to do certain interviews. depends on who you are interviewing. During COVID, I was interviewing people who are professionals, who have certain level of responsibility over healthcare. So I, in those cases, it was okay to interview them via Zoom. But I can't wait to go back to the Dominican Republic in a couple weeks and start to be really immersed in the field and do research that you couldn't do online. I can imagine it'll be really exciting to be back in that situation. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, if you were given unlimited funding and you could complete any research project, is there a dream that you've been wanting to work on? So, you know, it's not an easy question because mm -hmm. there are, I like to work with students and train them to become engaged in real world problems. So those are not necessarily what happens always in the classroom, but, um, and, uh, 
I'm, uh, as you could see yesterday, I'm very passionate about the work that I do. I'm working in addition to maternal health. I've started to work on early childhood development and poverty. And I, there are a lot of research questions that I have. Mm -hmm. And I would certainly like to devote um, resources to both perspectives. Oh, that's fantastic. Once again, on behalf of the Clark Forum, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your perspective today. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much.